electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the drug that could help treat COVID-19, remdesivir, and the drug maker behind it. Gilead CEO Daniel O'Day on the promising early stage results of the drug's trials. On behalf of all the colleagues at Gilead that have been working day and night, we're just humbled and pleased by the results this week as a starting point for therapies. How Gilead is working with other drug makers to quite literally save the world. Oftentimes, combinations of medicines is exactly one needs to take the next step in terms of treatments. And the details of finding the right drug for the job and how to distribute it once we do. We are focused on making sure on a global basis that this medicine gets into the patients that need it. Plus, podcast exclusive, going beyond the COVID headlines with the CNBC reporter who's covered it for months, Meg Terrell. Gilead developed this drug years ago, so it's been kind of a long tail, a months-long story to get to this point. This could be the first drug proven to really work against COVID-19. It's Friday, May 1st, 2020, May Day. Squawk Pod begins right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today's highlight interview is with Gilead CEO Daniel O'Day. Gilead is the maker of the antiviral remdesivir that might, might be effective in treating COVID-19. Will it work? There's a lot to understand about the pharmaceutical industry and drug development. And for that, I turn to my colleague, CNBC's Meg Terrell. I'm Meg Terrell. Um, I am the senior health and science reporter for CNBC, and uh, I mainly focus on drug development. So my beat has become uh, very topical these days. We've sort of seen a few main candidates come to the front of the pack when it comes to developing a therapeutic that can treat COVID and inventing a vaccine from scratch. And one company that has come up and one name that has come up quite a lot is Gilead's remdesivir. I never thought that I would think of news anchors being able to say remdesivir, you know, rolling off the tongue as much as it has. Tell me a bit about the story of this particular antiviral drug. Yeah. So um, Gilead developed this drug uh, years ago um, before anybody knew anything about SARS-CoV-2, this virus (laughs) that causes COVID-19. And when the Ebola epidemic struck in West Africa, um, they took it off the shelf and um, saw that it had potential activity against the Ebola virus and tested it there. And it actually was deployed in a clinical trial in the Congo uh, when we saw the next outbreak of Ebola. Uh, but it didn't show uh, tremendous efficacy in that trial. Other drugs worked better. Uh, then when we started hearing about this mysterious pneumonia from Wuhan, China, 
uh, Gilead scientists again started looking in their arsenal of drugs on the shelf to say, do we have any antivirals that could be effective against this virus? And again, remdesivir was the one. Um, so they started working on this back in January, um, trying to figure out if this would work against COVID-19. Um, and also um, starting to think about how to manufacture it in large quantities if it did work, because this is a very complex drug to manufacture. So it's been kind of a long tale, a months long story to get to this point where we have some data showing this could be the first drug proven to really work against COVID-19. And how is the drug administered? So it's complicated. Um, it's an intravenous infusion and it's given for that reason in the hospital. So this isn't going to be a pill that people can take when they have the first signs or symptoms of COVID-19. And for that reason, you know, it's not that silver bullet that we're looking for to cure this disease, but it could be helpful uh, for the sickest patients. So there've been a handful of headlines about remdesivir in recent weeks. Can you help us walk through the difference between the different institutions looking into the efficacy of the drug and how these headlines have attracted our interest and have attracted the interest of Wall Street when it comes to Gilead investors. It's been a real roller coaster over the last month. So going back to the beginning of April, um, Gilead itself reported the first data we saw about this drug in COVID-19. It was from 53 patients who were given the drug on what's known as compassionate use. And that's for incredibly sick patients who, for, some, for whatever reason, can't get into a clinical trial. Maybe they don't fit the criteria um, for any reason. Um, but the problem with those data is that there's no placebo control. So it's not, the drug's not being compared against anything. So they could really just say what they saw uh, in those patients. And they did see a clinical benefit, but that was not enough to prove the drug was working. The next week, we got that stat news report essentially from a video from the University of Chicago uh, Medicine, a hospital in Chicago that was part of one of Gilead's clinical trials. And essentially, they were communicating internally to their own faculty about the positive results they were seeing in this trial. Um, Stat News, a great medical website, got a hold of that video and reported that it seemed like there were positive results coming out from this trial. The next week, we got another report also from Stat News and from the FT. Uh, simultaneously, those um, reporters saw the World Health Organization had accidentally posted a screenshot of results of a trial of Gilead's drug run in China. The World Health Organization, when they realized this, immediately took down the screenshot, but STAT and the FT had it. And those data were not positive. It essentially showed the drug didn't work in that China trial. Now that's complicated because the trial in China was run at a point when the disease there was on the decline. So we were getting this very confusing and mixed picture of what remdesivir actually does in COVID-19. And that led us up to this week. We had two distinct headlines that kind of came out on top of each other. I have exactly what Dr. Gottlieb was just referring to. And I assume he was just reading the press release as I was just reading it because Gilead just put out its own study results. So that was the one we were expecting today. This is in severe patients with COVID-19. We had both the NIAID from the National Institute of Health coming out with some positive news, possibly, that then we heard a little bit more about. And then we also had Gilead's details themselves. Um, the Gilead CEO described that as waiting for the science to speak. What did the science tell us? So we got those NIAID results a month earlier than we expected. So it was quite an exciting morning. <laughs> um, and the reason we wanted those results so much was because that was the only gold standard placebo-controlled trial 
um, of this drug. So we got to see how well the drug works, worked against a comparator of, of not getting anything or getting supportive care. Um, what those data showed was that remdesivir sped up the time it takes for patients to recover from COVID-19 to a median of 11 days for the drug versus 15 days for those on placebo. So about a 30% improvement. And what Dr. Anthony Fauci of NIAID said was, you know, that may not seem like a home run knockout 100% cure rate, but it's the first step. And he compared it to the early days of HIV, which mm. he was uh, really involved in. I mean, he was the head of that agency back then. <laughs> and that, that's kind of a nuanced comment because what happened at the early days of HIV was they had no drugs. There was all kinds of anecdotal data coming out. Uh, and then they did get the first clinical trial results on a drug that appeared to work, but the benefit was modest. And from there, they built on that drug with other drugs. And the cocktail therapies that treat HIV now and keep it suppressed work very well, but it took years um, to get those. And so I think what Dr. Fauci was saying was this is a first step. Whenever you have clear-cut evidence that a drug works, you have an ethical obligation to immediately let the people who are in the placebo group know so that they could have access. And all of the other trials that are taking place now have a new standard of care. It may not be that knockout drug we want, but it shows that the virus can be blocked with the drug. I want them to go as quickly as they can. Uh, Stephen Hahn, Dr. Hahn has been incredible at the FDA. He's getting things done at record time. There's never been anything like it. And yeah, we want it. We want everything to be safe, but we do. We would like to see very quick approvals, especially with things at work. So let's come forward to today. How does an interview like this come together behind the scenes? We've got the interesting technology right now with you're at home, uh, Joe Kernan's at the NASDAQ, Becky Quick's at home, Andrew Ross Sorkin's at home. Tell me a little bit about how this all came together in really the last few hours. So in the last few hours, it actually went pretty smoothly. I mean, the teams have been incredible at CNBC in figuring out this new technology and in looping all of us in. So it really has started to feel like the new normal to me. Um, you know, the getting the interview today was the result of pestering the company <laughs> for weeks. I mean, and also, the you know, knowing the company and, and covering the company for a decade. Um, so that it was sort of a long-term effort that came together in this really exciting interview that we got to do today. Here's Gilead CEO Daniel O'Day on Squawk Box this morning with Meg, Joe, Becky, and Andrew. Joe Kernan starts things off. Mr. O'Day, thank you uh, for being with us uh, this morning. You, you've seen a couple of instances where the entire stock market it, it surges based on news that, that comes out about this drug remdesivir. So the, the importance of it and the relevance of it, I, I don't think, can be overstated. Can you tell us what happened this week, uh, why that was significant? I, 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 as you pointed out, there was, it hit its primary endpoint, and it did it on the shorter trial, which doubles the amount that you have ready to go, since instead of 10 days, it could be five days. Both of those things were important. Yeah, very important, Joe. First of all, thanks for having me on. I really do appreciate it. And, you know, on behalf of all the colleagues at Gilead that have been working day and night, this is a really important week for us to see these two study results. Uh, you know, so there are basically two studies that were announced this week, the results of those. One was the gold standard placebo-controlled trial from the NIH that was part of our suite of studies 
to determine whether remdesivir would be safe and effective against the COVID-19 virus. And the second one was a study uh, that Gilead ran to look at the difference between five days and 10 days of dosing. Both read out positive, and what that means is that uh, remdesivir uh, significantly reduces the recovery time for patients. Again, in the hospitalized setting we're talking about, uh, and uh, that many patients in the hospital can benefit from a five versus a 10-day dosing course, which means a number of things. It's obviously a benefit for patients, uh, but also for the healthcare system, because if you can free up hospital beds at this time, that's absolutely fundamental. So, you know, we're, we're just uh, humbled and pleased by the results this week as a, as a, as a, as a, as a starting point for therapies uh, in uh, COVID-19. As a, as a starting point, and that, that's something that's been pointed out on our own, Dr. Scott Gottlieb has, has pointed out, because it is showing it's active against the virus. Is it going to be similar, in your view, to the experience with some of the other uh, viruses it's been uh, uh, tested on, whether it's SARS or MERS or even Ebola, where it, it did show uh, activity, but maybe an antibody drug in con- conjunction with it would actually be more powerful in, in dealing w- with the disease. Do you, you expect it to be one, uh, one arrow in, in an arsenal of, of therapeutics or, or much better than that? Well, I mean, we're hopeful. I mean, I think these are really significant results on their own, I would say. And uh, we're not done yet. So we have trials that will read out in uh, more moderate patients in May to determine whether we can uh, have an impact even earlier in the disease course for hospitalized patients. But as you say now, the NIH and we were pivoting to now uh, new clinical ideas in terms of uh, antivirals being one way to treat this uh, disease. Uh, could it be supplemented and complemented by different mechanisms being used alongside that? You know, we have a playbook uh, in, uh, in uh, antivirals that shows uh, that uh, oftentimes combinations of medicines is exactly one needs to take the next step in terms of treatments. You know, many of these uh, patients in the NIH trial were on mechanical ventilation. We know around 30 percent. So those are the most severe patients. Uh, and uh, interestingly, uh, remdesivir had an effect well, we, we've seen the totality of the data. Of course, we'll see uh, that, that data being broken out by subgroups in the coming weeks, I'm sure. But the point is, uh, yes, one would think that it might also work even better earlier in the disease. But I think the surprise is that it also works late in the disease. And I think that's something that is, um, has a big impact for patients, of course, uh, with so many hospitalized patients in such great need. Meg? Well, thanks, Joe. And hi, Dan. Um, you mentioned that uh, two hey, studies read out this week. Uh, hi. Um, there was, of course, that third one from China, the incomplete trial where they couldn't finish the enrollment because case numbers were declining. It, the full results were reported in The Lancet this week. And a lot of folks are focused on those results, even though that trial wasn't finished and it wasn't a positive study. And one thing that analysts are really homing in on is the fact that it doesn't appear that the drug showed an effect on the viral load uh, in that trial. How are you interpreting those data and putting them into the full context of what effect remdesivir has? Yeah, thanks, Meg. I know there has been some confusion out there, and I hope I can clear it up a little bit. Uh, You know, from our perspective, we see tremendous consistency across all the data that we've seen so far in remdesivir, and that includes data that we had from our compassionate use programs, 
as well as data from the inconclusive China trial, and then now on to, if you like, the validated data, the most important data that we've seen this week from two randomized trials this week, which I think really trumps, you know, even that other data earlier on. But just to make sure we kind of set the record straight on this as well, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the clinical program was designed to be a suite of studies. So two placebo-controlled studies, one an investigator study in China and one the uh, NIH trial, and then a combination of open-label trials that were designed to answer different questions, like could you use a five-day treatment course versus a 10-day treatment course. Uh, the China trial, um, you know, maybe fortunately, but uh, unfortunately from a scientific standpoint, didn't recruit the number of patients had hoped to recruit. In fact, it was about halfway recruited when the disease in China was contained uh, for great news for patients. But the result of that is you have an inconclusive trial. I mean, you really can't make interpretations from that trial. But when one looks into the trial, you saw some of the same trends that you saw in the NIH trial. So you saw around a, a, an early but inconclusive 23% improvement in patients' uh, time to recovery. Whereas in the NIH trial, we saw, you know, a, a validated statistical improvement of 30 percent. So I think it's important to put that into context. And, and I really do think one has to turn their attention to the trials that did complete uh, and that did have the, the full patient dose. Now, to your point on the antiviral component of this, you know, we're still there's still so much about this disease we're still learning. Uh, and what's clear in, uh, you know, some other work that we've done also with the NIH uh, is that the sampling uh, of how the virus activity is going may not be the best predictor of clinical outcome. In other words, uh, sampling, uh, you know, the virus in the nose and nasopharyngeal passageway may not be indicative of what's going on in the lungs. So I think we still have to learn a lot about this disease. And in any case, uh, uh, the, the most important thing is, are patients getting better? And patients are getting better with remdesivir in this hospitalized, very serious situation. So that's what we're focused on, and now we're focused on building on that, uh, on that early uh, convincing data. Right. And as you build on the, the data, you're also undertaking a massive effort to increase supply of this medicine, something you began months ago, even before knowing how well it worked in this disease. This is a very complex drug to manufacture and takes a long time. And we understand that your scientists have already been able to shorten those timelines. Uh, but there was a note from RBC out yesterday suggesting by their modeling Gilead will only be able to supply enough to cover U.S. patients with COVID-19. How are you looking at the ability to supply the globe with this drug, and what kinds of pressures are you already feeling from governments? Well, let me first of all acknowledge the uh, tremendous work of the scientists at Gilead. You know, I mean, it's only been three months since we kind of became aware of this virus, and we immediately pivoted our attention to the clinical trial work and to the manufacturing supply work, um, completely uh, understanding that we didn't know whether the medicine worked, but that if, if it did work, we would need uh, a lot of supply. And so uh, what our scientists did, actually, in the past three months is took, as you mentioned, a very exacting, comprehensive chemical process that is 20 to 30 steps 
and much of it has to be done sequentially and not in parallel. They took it from a 12-month start-to-finish time and brought it down to a six-month start-to-finish time. And that's allowed us to have this kind of exponential growth in supply in the second half of this year because we took those actions already in January. So we are focused on making sure on a global basis that this medicine gets into the patients that need it. Uh, and we're focused on, on how best to allocate the medicine uh, you know, in these days and then how to convert that to an allocation when we have more supply. But uh, the supply that we have in our hands right now, the 1.5 million vials of remdesivir, which equates to uh, around uh, you know, 100 to 200,000 patient courses, depending on whether it's a five or 10 day treatment, we will completely donate. We didn't want anything to get into the way of this medicine getting into the hands of patients. And that donation is a, a global donation. It's, 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 uh, we, we, will, we will work with countries and healthcare systems around the world as they make this medicine available to their citizens based upon their regulatory requirements to uh, do our best to make sure we can allocate that accordingly. And then come up with the right plan for how we then move from these hundreds of thousands of treatment doses to millions of treatment doses. Uh, but uh, this, is, this is a global pandemic, it's a global problem, and we understand our responsibility here. And I know you've said it's too early to uh, say where you're thinking about pricing this after that initial donation. Uh, you told analysts on your conference call last night there's no playbook for this. We've never seen anything like this in the history of our existence uh, or our lives on this planet. But you are investing up to a billion dollars in remdesivir this year in manufacturing and in the clinical trials. And your stock was downgraded by three different analysts today based on the lack of visibility into revenue from remdesivir. I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you as the CEO of this huge publicly traded company that is now trying to serve the world its first drug that works for this pandemic, how do you balance those pressures from Wall Street and providing this drug uh, in a pandemic. Yeah, Meg, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a very natural thing at Gilead for us to be able to be focused on access and, and affordability and making sure that patients in both the developed and the developing world and finding creative ways to get this medicine to patients. I mean, if you look at uh, the, the, the history of this company with HIV, uh, decades ago when they took different approaches to get this, the HIV medicines to the developing world than they, to, they to, to, did to the developed world, those are the same lessons we'll put to work as we think about the right sustainable model to make sure that we can both invest in the future manufacturing uh, and the additional research that needs to go along with determining whether this medicine to get, can get to different patients, perhaps different formulations that can allow us to go earlier into other parts of the world easier. So we understand our responsibility both to patients and also to shareholders, and we'll be balancing that. It's early days, right? I mean, this is, it's been three days since we've got the clinical trial results. We need to digest those. We need to understand what patient populations this is best going to serve. We need to understand how the regulatory process will occur throughout the world. We need to understand where this pandemic will go and how many patients will be need to be treated with this. Those are all very, very important inputs to determining the model uh, that we will move uh, going forward. So I can tell you we take our responsibility very serious uh, towards patients, and we understand our responsibility as, uh, as a company as well and to our shareholders. Hey, Daniel, as you know, the world looks at, at a drug like this, and, and you saw even just the way the stock market reacted the, the day that the report came out. 
um, as this as new sense of confidence, this idea that people will feel more comfortable, hopefully in the future, uh, knowing that if they were to get this, that they, they, they may be able to get uh, protected or at least uh, not have uh, some of the, the, the dire consequences that, that we know so well about. Currently, this has to be used in a hospital setting. You've talked about that several times. You've also, though, made this reference to other formulations. And I, I was hoping you could speak to that, um, whether this could ever be in a pill form. We've heard, obviously, that maybe it could be put in an inhaler form and how quickly you think any of that kind of work uh, can get done because to the extent that uh, this could be done outside of a hospital setting, that would, that, that would be a material game changer even beyond the game changer that you've created already. Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, we're really focused on making sure that uh, the IV dose, which is the dose and, and, and mechanism by which the clinical trials read out this week, that we scale that up and that we get that, you know, focused and, and, uh, and out to patients in need. But at the same time, the same way that our scientists back in January started to think about manufacturing and, and increasing that supply, we also started to think about, you know, should this be effective what are other ways that we might be able to deliver this medicine to patients? It's still early days on that, and we hope to have some information relatively soon. But because of the nature of this medicine, uh, it's not appropriate for a pill formulation because uh, this is heavily metabolized in the liver, which means that uh, you know, it's not a suitable for an oral dosage form to be able to get the type of levels in the body that you need to suppress the virus. However, looking at subcutaneous formulations, looking at potentially inhaled formulations that get it uh, right to the source of the, of, the, of, the, of the massive viral replication in the lungs is something that we're firmly focused on now. And again, Gilead scientists are some of the best in the world at taking you know, chemistry processes and determining the best way to, to move those formulations along, and then our medical doctors find the best way to, to treat those. Hey, Daniel, I, f I want to say, first of all, thank you for taking your responsibilities so seriously, for, for agreeing to donate so much of this up front and make sure it gets to the right places. You are thinking all the right ways about doing this. Um, however, we've never seen something like this where the globe uh, basically gets shut down, countries everywhere dealing with the fallout from that. And I just think this might, might be a little different than what we've seen in other times with HIV or any other disease that had been taken on before. I know you have manufacturing and supply chains in different places. I just wonder if you can explain where that is, where, where you need these critical components from, and whether any country has moved to try and say you're going to, to help us first. Well, that's a really uh, important point, and, and, and we've already begun that process, and we need to continue it. But that is, you know, uh, and, and we've learned lessons, by the way, uh, you know, from uh, other pandemics and outbreaks like with uh, influenza, that it's extremely important to make sure that you have a very robust uh, supply chain with uh, a lot of duplication in it. Uh, uh, meaning that we have to think about having uh, a supply chain that's global, uh, that provides end-to-end uh, -end manufacturing in different parts of the world. And we're working, of course, with lots of partners on this. This isn't something that Gilead does on its own. We're grateful to have relationships with uh, high-quality manufacturers and chem chemical and pharmaceutical manufacturers around the world, uh, as, as well as other uh, biopharma companies that have stepped up to the plate and, and reached out to us and asked how they can help. It's, it's been so impressive to see how the bio and pharma 
community has come together here and dropped what they're doing to see if there's anything we can do with, to help with this virus. And I'm very proud to be working with the colleagues in this industry that are doing everything from treatments to vaccines and really dropping everything to get there. But Daniel, has any country come forward and tried to put the screws to you to say you've got to deal with us first and our population first? Well, thankfully, we've, we've uh, spoken with a lot of countries around the world. We have a, a terrific, ter terrific relationship here in the United States as well. I can only say that the government officials that we've been working with have been bending over backwards from regulatory to uh, supply to distribution here in the United States and around the world. I've been um, amazed at the outpouring of, obviously, interest, but also support. Uh, so the types of discussions that I've been having with uh, individuals around the world are productive conversations. They're conversations saying, how can we help? How can we expand the supply chain in our part of the world? Uh, and, uh, you know, really focused on patients, which I think is important. Those are the types of conversations that I'm having these days. Hey, Daniel, just one quick follow-up. Given, given your, that you're going to be donating this drug, at least in the, in the beginning, what do you think should be the business model for, for all the other drug companies out there that are working on these, these, these endeavors? Well, I, I think that's exactly the question that we're asking ourselves. And Meg mentioned it before. I, I think uh, there is no playbook for uh, this situation that we're in today. Uh, I think uh, this is the time for us all as an industry and certainly Gilead to do the right thing. And the right thing is to make sure that uh, we can get effective medicines to patients. Uh, it means that we also then have to transition to a, to a sustainable model that allows us to manufacture this successfully, that allows us to make sure that we can continue the investments. I mean, the reason that we're so ready today uh, is because of decades of investment. I think that's really important to point out. You know, I mean, uh, Remdesivir's story starts 10 years ago. Um, Gilead's story starts three decades ago in terms of its experience in antivirals. Uh, but we were ready. I mean, uh, uh, the important thing is that this is not an issue of taking something off the shelf. This is something where we uh, had invested in uh, the science behind emerging viruses, uh, where we tested remdesivir in a variety of different viruses as they came along. And thankfully, because of the broad antiviral nature of this virus, when we tested it against the coronavirus family, so SARS and MERS, we saw very strong activity of this in the lab. And then we saw it also with COVID-19. So we were prepared for this. But that pre preparation takes investment uh, and it takes scientific know-how and knowledge built up. And so I do believe that a sustainable model for this uh, is the reason we're prepared today uh, at Gilead and at, as, as an industry. And that's something we have to factor into as we think about how to get these medicines to patients around the globe. Dan, as we've heard uh, from a lot of your peer companies this week on their earnings conference calls, there is some hope from uh, people in the pharmaceutical industry that their work on this pandemic will uh, reset the public's opinion uh, of your industry from one that has uh, really precipitated, uh, precipitously dropped over the past few decades. Uh, as you talk about these new pricing models, do you think that there is going to be a resetting of how the industry thinks about pricing drugs um, in general as you do aim to regain the public's trust? Well, let me say, Meg, too, I, you know, I, I can't be more proud to work in this industry. I, I 
feel privileged to have uh, worked in an industry that has made such a difference to patients, that's really literally cured different forms of cancer. Uh, in the case of Gilead, uh, you know, uh, cure, cured hepatitis C and turned HIV into a chronic illness. Uh, and now the ability to make an impact on a global pandemic. So uh, I know I speak on behalf of all the colleagues at Gilead that we are just extremely proud to be working in this industry. Uh, and at the same time, I recognize and acknowledge the fact uh, that from a public sentiment standpoint, uh, you know, we have work to continue to do. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex system around the globe in terms of how our medicines uh, obtain access and get reimbursed in the world. Uh, and I do think that uh, we all are aware of our responsibility here, making sure that patients don't feel the burden of their prescriptions is something that we at Gilead are very focused on, uh, working with healthcare systems and governments to find ways for that to work. Uh, and I do believe that at this time, when we see the output of the research-based pharmaceutical industry, it's a time for us to make sure that we communicate uh, the investment that we put into these, the access programs we have, and then thoughtfully, you know, uh, come up with pricing models and reimbursement models that allow us to make sure those medicines get in the hands of patients and also allow us to continue to invest in that type of research that produced remdesivir in the first place. And Daniel, it, it, could, have the, it could have a positive effect in other ways, too, in that some of the misguided uh, knee-jerk proposals that we have about maybe, um, you know, bringing back price-controlled drugs from over in Europe where they have no innovation uh, left because they, they aren't able to, to get it, you know, they aren't able to recoup their investments. If, if the industry is able to help here in a big way, maybe we'll realize it's much better to develop drugs than it is to have people in hospitals for months at a time in terms of our health care needs. And uh, you know, we need the innovation. We need the patent protection. Companies need to be able, you know, if they spend $2 billion developing something, they, you know, they need to be able to recoup their investment for, for their investors as well. We've lost sight of that. Uh, even with, Republic, even with uh, the Trump administration, doesn't, you know, seems to lose its way at times about, uh, about what really makes sense to make sure we, in, we have innovation in the future. Well, I mean, Joe, I, I just think it's absolutely fundamental. This, this industry has uh, produced uh, such a benefit for patients, but also for the healthcare system. I mean, when you cure diseases, when you turn diseases into chronic manageable illnesses, you have a big impact upon the healthcare systems. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's at the core of what we do at Gilead. I mean, our ability to focus on transformational medicines, to focus on the science, to disproportionately uh, invest in research and development is exactly what it's all about. And yes, uh, you know, we, we have work to do with policymakers around the globe to remind them of the nature of, uh, of, of uh, how that works, the significant capital investment at risk, uh, the fact that 90% of everything that we take into human beings uh, fails, uh, you know, you have to have a, a you have to have a strong will, and and a lot of optimism to work in this industry. Uh, and uh, again, I'm proud to work in it. The model works. Uh, you know, when you disproportionately invest, and when you have patent protection for a, a limited period of time after you make those investments. Um, and I'm really proud of what Gilead has done here 
uh, with Remdesivir. It's, it's um, uh, again, just a privilege to, to, to be a part of this. Well, it's a privilege to have you on uh, today, too, and, and update us on all this. Uh, and hopefully we can see you with, uh, with an update, you know, soon. Uh, we'd like to hear it. And uh, whenever, you know, as this moves along, we're, the entire world is watching. Thank you. Meg, what would you think is the key takeaway from the discussion with Daniel O'Day today on Squawk Box? There are a couple. I think the first is that uh, O'Day, along with Dr. Anthony Fauci from NIAID, they believe they have the first drug that works for COVID-19, but they are going to continue to plumb the data and to get more information about how well it works, for whom it works, when it works best. All of that information is crucial to being able to use the drug in the best way possible. The next question is the supply of the drug. And and Becky was really asking fantastic questions about the pressures that Gilead is going to be under from different governments over how to supply that drug. Every country is going to want this drug for their patients. And it appears that manufacturing supply, it will be constrained for at least a short time. Um, It's a very complex drug to manufacture. So we're going to be watching Gilead try to navigate its way through that. And finally, the question of price. They are donating the drug, uh, at least the supply that they have right now. But after that, they're going to have to figure out where to price this drug so that it can be accessible to as many patients. Um, But also, we have to watch how they weigh those pressures from their shareholders The stock was downgraded by three analysts this morning after the earnings call last night. And the entire focus or much of the focus from the call was really on they're spending a billion dollars on this drug this year alone, but there is no clarity into whether they'll make any revenue from it. Uh, And Wall Street is very unfamiliar with those kinds of (laughs) calculations. So it's going to be just incredibly fascinating to see how Gilead navigates that. It will be fascinating to watch and every glimmer of hope is a good one. So thank you so much, Meg. Thank you for joining us. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation. 
And that's Squawk Pod for today and for another week. On Monday, Warren Buffett, in his own words, the Berkshire Hathaway chairman and CEO, is hosting his annual shareholders meeting virtually. Coronavirus has made us all learn new things. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. But to listen to the best, smartest moments from our TV show and get even more like today, subscribe to Squawk Pod on your favorite podcast app. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.